Brother Desi to the, uh, the microphone at this time. All right. Thank you, Brother Russ. And welcome. I guess we'll start here. Yes? Yes, it looks like we're going to start with a press conference tonight. Hello. So, uh, Brother Desi, um, Brother Jose Diaz with the Spanish Inquisitor. Who wrote the Book of Romans? Who wrote the Book of Romans? Yes, sir. That would be the Apostle Paul. Okay, yes. The little lady in the front, yes. <laughs> I am Baba Wawa, and I am from the New York Daily News. And we have inquiring readers that read our page six. And they want to know, who was Paul writing to? Okay, who was Paul writing to when he wrote the letter to the Romans? Well, Paul was writing to a group of house churches that were located in the city of Rome. It was predominantly a Jewish church, but there were also Gentiles present in that congregation. Uh, yes. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, Professor Desi, um, mm -hmm. Randy Pooper with the Toilet Digest. Um, we wanted to ask you a question. Our, our readers want to know. When did Paul write this letter? When did Paul write the letter to the Romans? Probably about 56, maybe 57 AD. Yes. Uh, looks like other people have questions. Uh, Go uh, ahead. Professor uh, Al Marley here from Jamaica for Christ 101. Uh -huh. What was the purpose of this letter? What was the purpose of this letter? So Paul wrote this letter to a group of house churches that he had personally never visited. And so this letter served multiple purposes. One of them was kind of to introduce himself to these house churches and make a connection with them because he was planning a trip that was going to come through that area. So it was kind of a formal introduction to those people. And he also wanted them to know that he shared the same faith that they did. And many consider the letter that he wrote to these Roman churches to be a masterpiece of his theology, a good summary of the way he viewed the gospel. And just a yeah, follow-up question, Professor. Professor, when are you going back to France? When am I going back to France? <laughs> I think you have reporters somewhere else asking you to include that. That's unknown at this time. We're going to go to a different reporter. Yes, Professor, this lady over here. Nisa Bing, CNN. Who delivered uh -huh. the letter? Who delivered this letter? Good question. Since Paul was writing a letter to a group of churches that he had not been to himself yet, he actually sent the letter with someone who was a trusted associate. And we find the name of this person in Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. And her name, it was a lady, was Phoebe. And Phoebe was entrusted to deliver this letter. And then not only deliver the letter, but actually read it out loud to those church congregations and work on his behalf, his delegate, and answer any questions they may have in regards to the letter. Thank you, uh, we're just about out of time, Hi, but I think yes. I can take one last one question. More. Uh, Van yes. from CBS News. Uh, uh -huh. Well, uh, why in Romans 10, 9, and 10 did Paul say, if you believe and confess Jesus, you'll be saved, but then told believers in Acts 19 that they needed to also be baptized? Oh... Good question. Uh -huh. This is your gotcha question, huh? Yeah, exactly. So why do we see in Romans chapter 10, which is often quoted, where we're told that if we believe and confess Jesus, we'll be saved, but then we see it looks like Paul acting differently in Roman, or excuse me, Acts chapter 19 when he meets a group of believers in Ephesus and he tells them that they must be baptized. So what's going on here? 
what we have is two different audiences and two different contexts. In Acts chapter 19, Paul is meeting a group of believers who want to understand more about what they need to do to be saved. They need to believe on Jesus. They need to be baptized. And then they'd be filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Romans, however, he's writing, and in Romans chapter 10, you have to consider the context. He's writing this letter to a group of house churches. The people who are hearing this letter, they have already believed the new birth message. They understand baptism in Jesus' name. They understand the infilling of the Holy Ghost. But at that point in the letter, Paul is actually writing about his own countrymen, his fellow Jewish nationalists, if you will, who had rejected Jesus. And in a moment of remiss, he was stating how he wished that his brothers had accepted Jesus as their Messiah. And then as a way to go further, he tells his readers that if they would accept, if they would believe on Jesus and confess Jesus, and keep in mind, he's talking about these Jews who had rejected Jesus as Messiah. So he's saying if they would confess that Jesus was Messiah, they could find salvation. Also considering that they are Jews, they, the people Paul is writing about, that if they would confess, fully understood that to confess Jesus as Messiah would mean that they would become disciples of Jesus. It would mean that they would have to be baptismed. They, they would have to be baptized in his name. They would have to come into his baptism. And so when you consider the audience, when you consider what he's talking about, we don't see a contradiction between the two examples. What we see is Paul writing to two different situations, and you have to fully understand what's going on there. So good question, but unfortunately we're out of time, and I think I'm going to have to close this press friends press conference and move on with the beginning of our lesson. Thank you all. Maybe we can take questions later. All right, so welcome to Big Group Learning tonight. And we're going to begin our lesson two. And you should hopefully have received some handouts for the adults as you came in with some lesson notes. And if you look at the beginning of Lesson 2, you will see a title that has a strikethrough line in it. That's very intentional. I've taught this course a couple times. This is a summary of other material I've presented elsewhere. And technically, what we're going to talk about tonight is the beginning of what they call hermeneutics. It's the how to interpret something correctly. That's a boring word. You don't have to remember it. And if we want to get really, really technical, the foundation of what we consider to be hermeneutics is something called the grammatical historical method. And that's a big mouthful. That's boring, and you don't have to remember that either. If you want the technical term for what we're talking about tonight, it's called the grammatical historical method. But rather than that, I decided we'd call this investigating the scriptures. And what I want you to think through tonight as we walk through some of these questions that should be a study aid to you as you work your way through Bible studies, think of yourself as an investigative reporter, like in that opening skit we did. You want to think of yourself as someone who's looking at the scriptures and if any of you ever took a journalism class or if you ever remember in your high school English class having to answer these basic questions when you do investigations, the who, what, when, where, why questions, that's really, in a nutshell, the same kind of things we're going to do as we study Scripture and as we work to interpret Scripture correctly. So tonight, we're going to start with this idea of being an investigative reporter. 
And one of the first things you want to do when you pick any passage out of the Bible and you're wanting to do an in-depth study, you want to make sure that you understand the setting, and you can see that in your notes. The setting refers to the immediate background or the situation surrounding the text. If you want to understand a passage fully, you're going to have to ask questions about the speaker. You're going to have to ask questions about the original audience, who the speaker was either speaking to or in the case of letters, who these letters were written to, the occasion, why did they write this letter, and the purpose to what they're responding. In our opening skit, we had this example from Romans chapter 10, where we have a famous verse that is often used in evangelical circles, many times at various uh, crusades and rallies, made very popular from people like Billy Graham, where they would tell people and quote this passage from Romans chapter 10 that if they would confess Jesus, they would be saved. Did Paul say that? Yes, but you need to consider the setting. What was he doing? Paul was writing about his fellow Jewish compatriots who had rejected Jesus, and he was saying if they would confess Jesus as Messiah, they could find salvation. You cannot take that setting and then apply it in a generic sense to anyone and everyone who hears a basic gospel message, and if they would just simply accept Jesus, then they'll find salvation. You have taken that passage out of its context, and you have not considered its setting. So one of the first things you want to do when you're trying to do an in-depth study of Scripture is make sure that you understand the setting. Second thing you want to consider is the speaker. Who is the one speaking? And don't take, for this, don't take this for granted, who wrote the account? Just because someone is the main character, just because someone is the main speaker in a particular setting, especially in a narrative, does not mean that they are the ones who wrote the account. Tying back to our opening example, in Acts chapter 19, we have Paul as he's traveled to Ephesus, and he is meeting these believers. Paul is the one doing the speaking. He's the main character, if you will, in this narrative setting, but Paul did not write the book of Acts. Okay? So consider who's the one speaking, but also who wrote this account. Why did they write it? What were they trying to accomplish? What was their authority? Was this someone approved by God? And this is important. You should see this in your notes. Does the Bible record what this person said, or does the Bible endorse what they're doing? There are many places in Scripture, especially as we look through the Old Testament historical books, where the Bible has a very careful record of things that happened to the nation of Israel. Many times they were awful things. How many of you have ever read your way through the book of Judges and thought, this is just absolutely crazy? What were these people doing? Well, the author of the book of Judges says several times, and the people had no king in those days. In other words, there was no ruling authority. So Judges is recording these terrible, terrible things that happened in the nation of Israel, but it's not endorsing them. Just because they're in Scripture doesn't mean that they're good. It just means they're recorded. So you need to be conscious of that as you study Scripture and discern is Scripture recording what has happened, or is Scripture endorsing this behavior? Consequently, when we get, say, to the book of Acts, we see the book of Acts as very prescriptive for the way that we live as Christians. And so in the book of Acts, we see information that's not only recorded, but oftentimes is endorsed. This is a model of what Christianity looks like. This is a model of what evangelism and church growth looks like. 
Consider the original audience. Who was the letter written to? Who was this person speaking to? What is it that they would have, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later tonight, what is it that they understood implicitly, things that they'd understand because of their cultural context that perhaps we would miss in, we might miss? When you're trying to determine the meaning of a passage, if you come up with an idea, you've got an explanation, this is what this scripture means. If your explanation, and I'll say this very bluntly, especially when it comes to prophecy, especially when it comes to end times and things like that, if your explanation of what this scripture is talking about would have made absolutely no sense whatsoever at all to the original audience, then you've missed something. Because scripture was written and it was preserved for our benefit, but it had an intended purpose for its original audience. So if you've got some incredible explanation that you can walk through that explains fill-in-the-blank passage of scripture, especially something to do with prophecy, and it's completely and totally disconnected from the original audience, it would have made no sense whatsoever to the people who this letter or this book was originally written to, then you're missing something. So we have to keep in mind the original audience. What about the occasion? Why was this written? Where was it written? How? What circumstances gave rise? What about its purpose? What was the message? What was recorded? So again, these are the who, what, where, when, why kind of questions. This is nothing radical. Many of you are familiar with this, especially if you took a journalism class or you took an English class where you had to write some sort of investigative paper. You should be very familiar with these ideas. It's no different when we're studying the Scripture. As we're seeking to learn from the Scripture, we should be able to answer these questions for ourselves: The who, what, when, where, why kind of things. Now, before I go any further, how are you going to be able to do this? You can't just pull this out of the air. It's going to take a little bit of study. There are many, 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 many resources out there. Many, many, many resources out there. And we live in a golden age of information where it's very easy to find lots of publicly available resources. So tonight, I have spread across the front here, and you can see it either on the break or afterwards. Brother Moss has some books, and I have some books. This is by no means exhaustive. This is just a chance to start something. You can come ask me questions directly if you'd like to. But here are a few examples of some different kinds of study aids, things that would talk about the history of the nation of Israel. Here's a book on ancient manners and customs and the culture of the ancient world. Here's a commentary series that looks at the background of what's going on in many different scriptural passages. Here are some timelines and different charts of events that happen in the Bible, give you a historical perspective. Here's a book about the four Gospels and how they relate together. Over here on this side, Biblical Archaeological Review. This is a periodical. It's a magazine that's still in print today where they talk and discuss archaeological digs and discoveries they found about the ancient lands of the Near East. Atlas of the Bible, Bible Life and Times, etc. You get the idea. The point of these books here is just to give you a sample of the kind of things that you can readily find at a library, you can find at a bookstore. Many of these resources may be available online for you just to simply Google. The more you learn about the background, these things we're talking about, the setting, the context, the easier it will be for you to investigate the scriptures, the easier it will be for you to learn about the scriptures. So, 
by all means, later tonight, have a look at some of these books, thumb through them. If you have any questions, if you want any recommendations, etc., you're welcome to talk to me after service. Looking back at your notes, in addition to the setting, the idea that you're going to be an investigative reporter, another thing that you want to keep in mind is history. How many of you like history? Good. I figured it'd be a mix here. Usually, you know, about half the people or so enjoy history. How many of you, like, hated history in school? It was just torturous for you. For those of you who hated history, I am so sorry. You had terrible teachers. I just, it has to be, right? Because history is amazing. History is nothing but stories. And if you found history to be boring, that means somebody wasn't doing it right. Because everybody should love history. History is the story of us spread across all of human history. The more you like history, the easier it is to learn about Bible lands and customs and cultures. The easier it is to understand your Bible. If you understand the historical setting of a text, then it'll make things come alive to you. And I'm going to give you an example of that in just a few minutes. You've got to have some knowledge of this text because at best, we are 2,000 years removed. I think we lost projection. We are 2,000 years removed from the New Testament. And if we consider the events of the Old Testament, you can add another 2,000 years on top of that. So when you're reading the scriptures, you're reading about the patriarchs who are a good 4,000 years removed from them. So having some knowledge of history, having some knowledge of that background and what they were facing, what their world looked like, will make the scriptures a lot easier to read. You want to ask yourself, what did politics look like back then? That's nothing new. What were the social settings? What were these manners and customs? How did people get married? What was considered wealth back then? How did they conduct business? All of that looks different from today, but the more of that that you understand, the easier it will be, again, to read scriptures. In many cases, the Bible itself, whatever scripture passage you're looking at, will give you a frame of reference. It'll give you some clues to what's going on there. And then, as I've said, there's lots of external sources. Google can be your friend. My only caution there is when you do a Google search on something, you're going to get thousands and thousands of hits, as you well know. Some of these hits will be from an encyclopedia. It'll be from a dictionary. It will be, maybe it's an essay written, but the essay will have footnotes and tell you where all its sources came from. Perhaps it's a blog, but it might be the blog of a professor of ancient Near Eastern studies at fill-in-the-blank university. These are going to be a lot more legitimate than Joe's personal blog space where he's writing about some Bible study he did and this awesome insight he had. So there's a lot of information out there available on the Internet, but it's a huge spectrum. Some of it that's very legitimate, very relevant, very helpful. Some of it that's just crazy and is not worth paying attention to. So you've got to be careful when looking at online sources. It's just my little warning there. The more history you know about the ancient world the easier it is to imagine how the original readers would have understood the scriptures. If you want to make, I love the Gospels, I love the book of Acts. That's me personally. 
I really enjoy the setting of those stories. If you want to make it come alive like you never have before, spend some time learning about Greco-Roman culture in the first century. What was going on politically? Why were the Romans in Palestine? Why was there so much tension? The more you understand that, the more alive the scriptures can come to you. Another thing that you'd want to consider, not only setting, not only history, but the idea of geography. Having a general knowledge of the geography of the different lands that are mentioned in the Bible is going to be a great aid in understanding the different paths that these biblical characters walked. And I do mean that, walked, because for the most part, everyone in the ancient world walked everywhere. If you look at a map, you probably have one at the back of your Bible, and it traces the journeys of Paul and his different missionary journeys, and you see how many miles he covered and the terrain that he went across over the course of those years, you'll begin to appreciate how much Paul and his companions, because again, he wasn't alone, that traveling group did as they planted those churches, considering they walked pretty much everywhere other than when they were at sea sailing. It's a huge amount of ground that they covered. It's a lot of distance that they went. Little side note, you read in the book of Acts how they wanted to go through the province of Asia, and the Spirit said no, and so they went here, and the Spirit said no, and they wanted to go into Bithynia, and that didn't work. So they make their way west towards Greece. That passage takes all of 15 seconds to read. It covers about two verses. Go look at a map. The Spirit said no multiple different ways they tried to go. That quick little blip probably represented a month, maybe two worth of walking through areas to get somewhere else. So again, the more you understand about geography and just what these lands look like, the more alive some of these scriptures can come for you. Let me give you an example of this. We'll turn to our first passage. Here we have John chapter 4, and this is a very famous passage, where Jesus is traveling with his disciples. And starting in verse 3, it says, He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Notice, he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And I'll stop right there, because we don't need to go into the story any further. You know this story, we've got a woman at a well, etc., etc. What's going on here? Why is it significant that John would point out that he needed to go through Samaria? If you know the land of Palestine at this time, for the most part, the land of Israel at this point in history was broken into three regions. We might almost call them like counties. So up at the top, you have Galilee. In the middle, you have Samaria. In the bottom, you have Judea. Samaria was a land, at this point, this region was a group of ethnically mixed Jews that had intermarried over the years with other nations. For devout Jews, they were no longer considered pure. They hated the Samaritans. They didn't want anything to do with them. They considered them inferior. Many devout Jews, if they needed to travel from Judea up to Galilee in the north, would actually cross the Jordan River come up the other side of the Jordan River without ever having to step foot in Samaria, then cross the Jordan River again back into Galilee because they wanted nothing to do with that middle ground, that Samaria area. 
So then we read in the Gospels, and it says Jesus is in Galilee, headed towards Judea, but he needed to go through Samaria. He deliberately and very intentionally walked through that middle region, which was a no-no culturally, something a devout, pious Jew would not do. And yet John records he did it on purpose. He wanted to go to that city. He had an appointment, if you will, with that woman by the well. Without some understanding of geography, you could miss these little details in the story, the importance and significance of what Jesus was trying to do. And then finally, another thing to consider, and you can see it represented on your notes, is Bible culture. Time spent studying the culture of the Bible is a huge, huge aid in understanding the Scriptures. So keep in mind, not only is the Bible written two to 4,000 years ago, depending on which part of the Bible we're reading about, it was also written to an Eastern culture, a culture that was very, very, very different from our culture. As Westerners, there are parts of the biblical narrative, parts of the Bible stories that do not make sense to us, or we're going to completely overlook them if we don't have some understanding of Bible culture. And again, there are several books on the floor across here that talk about Bible culture. This is by no means exhaustive, but the idea that you read just a little bit about, learn just a little bit about Bible culture, would help you in your own studies. Here are some questions you could look at. Where would I read? What kind of things would I look for? You should see these represented in your notes, but how about the material culture? Transportation, how did they get around? What did their houses look like? How did they dress? What was their attire? What kind of food did they eat? What about their domestic animals? What's the value of a donkey? Okay. Who had horses? What about languages? We have Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin all represented in the scriptures. How about politics? We have ancient empires. We have the Roman Empire. We have kings and emperors and governors. We have the Herodian dynasty during the Gospels and the book of Acts. You have this idea of tax collection, a legal system. I can't get into all of this tonight. Again, it's just a basic overview. But what's the big deal about taxes? Why did that? I mean, nobody likes taxes. But when you read the Gospels, you get the impression that these tax collectors were absolutely hated. Why? It's got to be more than just the money they were collecting, and it is. It had a whole lot to do with politics. It had a whole lot to do with who is in power, who is considered a traitor, who is considered working with the Romans versus who was being true to their national heritage. All of this is in the background of that culture. What about sociology, family structures, customs, rituals? What did urban life in Jerusalem look like compared to rural life way out in Galilee? We see Jesus dismissed multiple times in the Gospels because he's, you know, from Nazareth, way up in the north. Can anything good come out of Galilee? That's like the backwater hick town. This is Jerusalem, big city, right? So what did that mean to them? Economics. What was the economics? What kind of power play was going on when you've got farmers and fishers versus people who were business owners, who conducted commerce? Take the role of someone like Peter, James, and John, who were fishermen, commercial fishermen, versus someone like the Apostle Paul, who 
was not only a trained Pharisee, but was also a tent maker. And that word probably is better translated a leather worker. He would have made tents, but it was more than tents. He probably would have made saddles. He would have done anything and everything that had to do with leather. He was a skilled tradesman who owned a business. So take that versus a fisherman or perhaps Luke, who's a physician. So their business background, their level of education, the kind of money that they had access to, all of that plays into how they're interacting with other people and how much influence they have. What about philosophical beliefs? You had Platonists and Aristotelians and Epicureans and Stoics and Cynics and Skeptics, all these different Greek philosophies, and they're in the background of Roman politics, and they're in the background of some of the people that Paul deals with as we go through the book of Acts, and we're dealing with his interaction with these philosophers on Mars Hills. And then we have all these religious beliefs, not only the Greek and the Roman religious beliefs, but then when we get to the Jewish institutions and parties, you hear reference to Torah and Talmud, this idea of Septuagint, this Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Apocrypha, the whole temple complex. Temple was not a building. When you see in the scriptures and it talks about Jesus going to temple, understand the temple proper was a very small building by our standards and only the priests could go into it. Jesus never went into the temple itself. But when we say temple in the scriptures, we're talking about the temple complex. Now we're talking about a piece of property about 40 acres large, the size of maybe a county fair with tons of buildings on it. And at religious festivals, Jerusalem would swell, and you might have upwards of a million people on the temple grounds at these religious festivals. So we talk about Jesus going and standing out in the temple grounds, and he's teaching and preaching. The place would have been absolutely packed. It'd be like you deciding to go set up shop and teach or preach right in the middle of your county fair. So there's tons of activity going on. Lots of noise, lots of people, lots of commerce, lots of interaction going on all around. The more we understand what's going on in the background, the more to life this can come. And then we have this reference to these scribes and these Pharisees and these Sadducees and these zealots. And in the background of Scripture, not directly named, but most certainly there, this other religious group at the time, the Essenes. All of these different groups, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, Essenes, these are all devout Jews. All of them have very radical, different beliefs about what Messiah is going to look like and how he's going to act. All of them have very different interpretations of the Old Testament. All of them are active and politically arguing with each other at the time of Jesus. Sometimes you may hear people talk about, well, this is what the Jews believed or this is what the Jews taught when reference to Jesus. And that's probably not really fair because by the time we get to Jesus in the Gospels, we don't have Judaism. We don't have this one unified collection of beliefs and this is how the Jews think and behave. They, spra- they have fractured and they've splintered into multiple different groups and by now you have Judaisms. There's at least four or five political parties within the Jewish nation all trying to take control when Jesus steps on the scene, all of whom are looking for a Messiah, all of whom think Messiah is going to do something different, all of whom end up angry and mad at Jesus because he doesn't do what they want. And sometimes they're arguing with him directly, and sometimes he gets in the middle of an argument between two different groups, and sometimes they're taking pop shots at him, and all of this is going on in the background of scriptures. 
And the original audience who heard these stories, they would have known who these political parties were. If I say libertarian, or if I say Tea Party, or I say Republican, or I say Democrat to you, that means something. Wouldn't mean anything to first century world if they were reading about us today, because they're so far removed from it. It's the same way in reverse. When we read in Scripture and it says Sadducee, or it says Pharisee, or it says scribe, or it says zealot, that meant something very specific to those people. It meant a very specific set of political and religious views. And so when these groups are talking to each other in the temple grounds, again, think this big, huge area with hundreds of thousands of people milling about, and they get in an argument over something, there's worlds clashing here. And then they all turn on Jesus and want to argue with him. And he doesn't answer any of their questions the way that they expect. All of this is in the background of Scripture. And the more we learn about these settings, the easier it is to understand what's going on and the more exciting and alive the Scripture passages come. So in kind of a quick overview, I've talked about the idea of setting biblical history, biblical geography, biblical culture. Let's put it all together right now in a quick little exercise. We're going to turn to another very well-known passage. This is one of my favorite passages in the book of Acts. This is Acts chapter 6, and this is the story of Philip as he is speaking to this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, I'm going to read it. You just hang with me for a moment. And then we're going to go back through, and I'm going to point out some of these different things. And let's see if this story looks a little bit different by the time I'm done. Before I even start reading it, how many of you are familiar with the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8? Good. I hope most of you are, because that will make this exercise even more relevant. Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26 and reading all the way to verse 40, it says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all of her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, 
And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. This passage sounds familiar to most of you, right? Many of you, especially if you've been around church for a while, have probably heard this story many, many, many times. But let's look at this idea of Bible history and Bible culture and Bible geography, setting, etc. And let's see what we can dig out of this. Verse 26, it says that Philip was told by an angel to arise and head toward Gaza. Now, Philip is in Samaria, and he's preaching what we'd call a revival. And there are many, many, many people who are accepting this gospel message of Jesus. And things are going awesome. And Peter and John come up, and they pray for people, and they're, Philip baptizes them in Jesus' name. And then Peter and John show up, and all of a sudden, these people are filled with the Holy Spirit, and the church is exploding, and it's awesome, and it's wonderful, and we're having revival. Thank you, Jesus. Glory. Hallelujah. And an angel appears to him and says, it's time to leave at the height of this revival, not when things have died down. And the angel tells him, I want you to take the road south of Jerusalem and head toward Gaza. Okay, so what's the big deal here? The big deal here is that the road south of Jerusalem heading toward Gaza went through a desert area. And by this time, Gaza is a deserted city. It had been destroyed more than 100 years before. There's nothing but ruins here. So think of this. He's in what we would consider more of a metro area. He's hosting huge evangelistic revivals. And an angel appears to him and says, I want you to leave, and I want you to start heading south down the road and go to that deserted ghost town that nobody lives in anymore. That makes no sense at all. Why would you leave an active revival to go to nowhere? Verse 27, Candace of the Ethiopians. Candace is not a name. It's a title. Just like we think of a pharaoh as a title for the king of Egypt, Candace was the royal proper title for the queen of the Ethiopians. In the ancient world, Ethiopia was not just the area that we consider Ethiopia today. It was a generic term. Ethiopia meant basically everything south of Egypt. It was the generic term for what we would call Africa. And it was actually multiple different dynasties all throughout history. And at this time in Scripture, it was a very powerful political alliance. Ethiopia was so strong that the Romans went as far south as Egypt, and they didn't go any farther. For all of its Roman military might, they didn't want to pick a fight with Ethiopia. So you understand this is a powerful, powerful political and military nation. And it says that this eunuch is on his way back. And he's in charge of the treasury. So we have a court official from this powerful nation who would be something like our secretary of the treasury today. This is somebody who's in charge of a lot of money. This is a very wealthy, powerful, educated man. But it says that he's in Jerusalem. Now, if Ethiopia, if their territory kind of comes up to the bottom edge of Egypt, he is hundreds and hundreds of miles north of where his territory is. And the Romans and the Ethiopians would conduct trade together predominantly in Egypt. He's north of that. So he's way, way, way beyond the bounds of where his job would normally take him. Because that tells us that he's made a personal trip to Jerusalem. 
Let's not take this for granted. As we're reading in verse 28, it says the eunuch was sitting in a chariot. I told you as we were starting tonight, almost everybody in the ancient world walked everywhere. This man owns a chariot. Chariots are pulled by something. That means he has horses too. He's a political leader. That means he's got an entourage. He's not by himself. If he can invite Philip to come and sit in the chariot with him, that means it's a big chariot. This man has money. In the ancient world, he's got serious money and lots of influence. Verse 30, Philip asked the man if he understood what he was reading. Again, don't take this for granted because we live in America where the assumption is that everyone should graduate from high school and be literate. In the ancient world, it's more likely that only about 10% of the people could read. It's a minority. This man is reading his own personal copy of Isaiah. So again, all these little hints in the scripture that we don't typically notice unless we're digging in, it took serious money. Documents are handwritten. Very few people can read them. You have to go to a specialist to buy a copy of this document. Last week, I briefly talked about the very special care that the Jews took in preserving their scriptures. Isaiah is a huge book, even in print. I want you to imagine Isaiah handwritten. This is a massive scroll. This guy owns his own personal copy of this scroll and is sitting in his chariot, driving home from a trip to Jerusalem, and he's reading his own copy of these scriptures. So Philip has left a thriving revival, and he's walking towards a ghost town. And he comes across this entourage traveling through the desert down this road. And again, the Ethiopian eunuch would not have been by himself. You wouldn't send a head of state hundreds of miles out of their territory alone. So he has guards. He has attendants. He has serv- There's a whole group of people in this setting. They're just in the background. And Philip comes up along beside him and sees this man reading and says, what are you reading? Do you understand what you're reading? The man is frustrated at this point. He says, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? And at that point, I am sure that the Holy Spirit made it clear to Philip, this is why you're here. So he invites Philip unto his chariot as they continue to travel down the road. And he begins to talk to Philip. And Philip begins to tell him what's going on. And the passage that we just read is out of Isaiah 53. And notice the hint in Acts chapter 8. It says, beginning at this scripture. He begins to explain Jesus to him. The man has Isaiah. We don't know if he has other Hebrew scriptures, but he at least has Isaiah. Why is this a big deal? Scripture is also said multiple times in this passage that he's a eunuch. Eunuch is a proper title for a court official. Eunuch could also represent a male who had been castrated so that way they could not reproduce an heir. In this case, because it doesn't just call him a eunuch once, but calls him a eunuch multiple times, this man probably was a eunuch in every full sense of the word. you got to read between the lines, but Luke is narrating this passage, and he's saying, so the Ethiopian eunuch, who was a eunuch, who was a eunuch, who's a eunuch, you hear the hints, right? He's making it very clear that this man is like eunuch in the full sense of the word, not just a political title. Why does this matter? It says he had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Well, how far would he get? He's a foreigner, so he's not Jewish, and he's a eunuch. 
Well, let's go back and read a passage out of Deuteronomy 23.1. He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. So per Mosaic law, he wasn't even allowed anywhere near the temple or the temple grounds. But Scripture says he had gone up to Jerusalem to worship. So how much could he have actually done as a foreigner and a eunuch? Not very much. Now he's traveling back to Ethiopia, and he's reading this passage, and he's in what we would call Isaiah 53. Remember, there's no chapter and verses at this point. He's just somewhere in the scroll reading. But he's in Isaiah chapter 53. And starting from this place in Isaiah and going forward, Philip explained Jesus to this eunuch. And this is a huge deal. Why? Because in Isaiah chapter 56, and go back and read this later tonight. Remember, they start in what we would call Isaiah 53. And it says, starting from there, he explained Jesus. You've only got to go three chapters later. We see this prophecy in Isaiah 56 about a future time when both foreigners and eunuchs will be allowed into the assembly of the Lord. And this man is both. How can I understand these scriptures unless someone explains it to me? And as Philip explains these scriptures, as Philip talks about these prophecies, as Philip tells this man who Jesus is, even though he's wealthy, even though he's a political leader, even though he has all this influence, this man is hungry for God, but per the requirements of the law, he's been held at an arm's distance. And here he is traveling home. And remember, they're towards Gaza. This is kind of a deserted area. And here's this lone dude walking down the road by himself. This is a God appointment. And this man tells him, you're reading about Jesus. I can tell you who this is. And you're reading about a covenant age that has just started. And you're welcome. You can have this. God will not hold you at arm's length because you're a foreigner and a eunuch. And so as they're talking, they come across what we would call a wadi, this stream bed that has water in it at this time. And so in verse 36, he points and says, there's water. Can I be baptized now? Why is this so exciting for him? For the first time, someone has just told him, you can belong. You can enter covenant. He wouldn't have been baptized in Jerusalem, right? He would have been held at arm's length. Here's water. We could be baptized right now. They're in the middle of the desert. It's not like there's streams everywhere, okay? So it's a big deal that they came across water. How convenient. It's almost like God did that. And so they get out of the chariot And Philip takes this man, and they enter into the water together. So they wade down into this small pond, this wadi, and he baptizes this man, no doubt, in the name of Jesus, because we read earlier in Acts chapter 8 that he was baptizing the Samaritans in the name of Jesus. So why would it be any different here? So he baptizes this political leader, this Ethiopian eunuch, in the name of Jesus, and they come up out of the water, and it says, according to the Scriptures, that they turn... And they start walking back towards the chariot. So you can imagine they're still in the water, and I see them coming up out of this water, and all of a sudden, Philip is gone. 
And the word that's used there is the same Greek word that's used later on in Thessalonians when it talks about us being caught away in the twinkling of an eye. He's gone. Ethiopian eunuch turns around, and this dude who's walking down a deserted road in the middle of nowhere, who just explained Jesus to him, who just baptized him, poof, is not there anymore. This is an incredible story. It's a crazy story. I think it's one of the most powerful stories in all of the book of Acts. And when Luke is writing this, he's screaming to his audience, Jesus is for everyone. But if you don't know the Bible geography, and if you don't understand the political context, and you don't have some insight into this culture, you're going to read a neat story about a guy who is an evangelist and preached Jesus to an Ethiopian and baptized him. And you missed so much that's there. But the original audience would have understood all these things because they knew what eunuchs were. They knew where Ethiopia was. They knew there was nothing out by Gaza. So we have to work to bridge these gaps. But when we do, these stories come alive. How many of you in the last five minutes learned something new about Acts chapter 8 and that story? It's incredible. It's like this all over the Bible. And the more we learn about history, the more we learn about Bible geography, the more we learn about Bible culture, the more these kind of events can come to life. So for those of you who don't really enjoy history, I'm sorry. Someone taught you incorrectly. Everybody should love history. It's our story. And the more we understand of these kind of elements, the more to life they can come, the more we can appreciate it. So why don't everybody go ahead and stand? This is a good stopping place. We'll take a break right here. You have five minutes. I'll go ahead and set a timer on my phone. You're welcome to go to the bathroom, get a snack, whatever. And when we come back, the first thing we're going to do is that Kahoot survey. If you have Kahoot's, as an app downloaded on your phone, you're welcome to pull that up. We're going to play a little game, and so everybody who wants to participate, we made an announcement at the beginning. You can go ahead and get that up. You will see a code when you sign into Cahoots. It'll tell you to enter your game pin. The game pin is 974283. I'll give everybody about 30 seconds. That's my timer. Go ahead and enter that code as it's getting set up. We're going to play a quick game. There's going to be 16 multiple choice questions in just a moment. You're going to have 20 seconds to answer each question. If you don't get it right, don't worry about it. We're just going to keep moving along. I see four people in so far. Five. Let's see if we can triple or quadruple that number in the next few minutes. So if you have your smartphone and you'd like to join, there you go. Give yourself a name. The rest you will get to watch. There we go. Now we're getting somewhere. Give it just a moment longer. So again, you'll have 16 questions. 20 seconds to answer each question. Some of you are going to go, oh, Brother Deza, you're taking me back to high school. Yep. Yep. Let's see what you remember from your high school English class. 
Oh, pastor's joining us from overseas, Stephen B. That's cheating. That shouldn't be allowed. Well, if he wins, it doesn't count. All right, we'll let him play, though. Okay, we're at 22 players. Let's go ahead and... Let's go ahead and hit start, Nick. Are you ready? An expression or phrase that must be considered as a whole. What is it? A metaphor, a simile, an idiom, or personification? An expression or phrase that must be considered as a whole. Is it a metaphor, a simile, an idiom, or personification? It's an idiom. Question two. Use of exaggeration for emphasis or effect. Use of exaggeration for emphasis or effect. Is that personification, idiom, autonomy, or hyperbole? Hyperbole. Very good. Next question. Which literary device is defined in the image below? So, using a word or phrase that ordinarily represents one thing to designate another. An indirect comparison of two things. Is that a metaphor, hyperbole, personification, or irony? Metaphor. Next question. A direct comparison of two things, usually by using the word like or as. Is that hyperbole? Metaphor? Is that an idiom or simile? Simile. Very good. Next question. Describing an inanimate object or abstraction as having human qualities or attributes. Is that personification? Is that a synecdoche, irony, or metaphor? That would be cheating. <laughs> And the answer is personification. Next question. Substituting a word or phrase for another with which it is closely associated. Is that a metaphor? Is that metonymy? Is it simile or hyperbole? Metonymy. 
Using a part to represent the whole or vice versa. Is that irony, personification, an idiom, or a synecdoche? Synecdoche. Using words to express something different from and usually the opposite of their intended meaning. Is that irony, idiom, metaphor, or hyperbole? It's irony. Which literary device is used in this scripture? Our God is a consuming fire. Is that metaphor, hyperbole, irony, or personification? It's metaphor. Which literary device is used in this scripture? At the right hand of God. Is this a metaphor, simile, idiom, or personification? Oh, a tricky one. It's an idiom. Which literary device is used in this scripture? The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire. Is that hyperbole, metaphor, simile, or idiom? Very good, simile. Which literary device is used in this scripture? Now the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. Is that personification, idiom, hyperbole, or metony? Metonymy, excuse me. That's hyperbole. How about this scripture? Wisdom call aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. Personification, metaphor, irony, synecdoche, you decide. Personification. Which literary device is used in this scripture? For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. Is that metaphor, metonymy, hyperbole, or simile? Metonymy.
Getting close to the end. Two questions left. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Irony, personification, synecdoche, or idiom. Synecdoche. Final question. Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's meditating, or he's busy, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. Is that irony, idiom, metaphor, or hyperbole? Irony. And the results of our little quiz? In first place, just leave it here, Nick. Who is Vibro? That would be Vincent Beardsley. Congratulations. And RF? Who's RF? Russ Faubert. He probably beats you by just a millisecond. It's that quiz training. Look at that. 16 out of 16. And then finally, McSquid. Ryland. You looking at your dad's answers or? No? That's not fair, is it? <laughs> Congratulations to the three of you. Why don't we give a hand to our, our three English experts. All right. Unofficial poll, how many of you like that? We did more of that kind of stuff in the future. Would that be interesting? Okay, good. All right, so in the first half of tonight, I was making a plug for the fact that you really, really do need to like history. So you can probably guess where this is going. And I'm apologizing ahead of time, because for some of you this is painful. But English does have value. And grammar and syntax are important. How many of you liked English in high school? How many of you will admit English was not your favorite subject? Yeah, that's a lot of us. And that's okay. That's okay. I am not asking any of you to become English experts. But as you're learning to study the scriptures, as we're learning to interpret what the scriptures are telling us, there is value, immense value, in just understanding some basic parts of speech. Like the English language, the Bible contains many expressions of speech that should not be taken in a literal sense. We talk about the literal interpretation but we don't literally mean the literal interpretation because a lot of times the words are not literal. A good student of Scripture will learn how to recognize these different special literary forms. So I'm going to highlight, we talked about eight of them. I'm going to take four of them and spend just a little bit more time. First one up is an idiom, and I love idioms. They strike me as funny. Many of us are familiar with them. We use them all the time without necessarily realizing it. An idiom is an expression or a phrase that must be considered as a whole. You cannot derive the meaning of an idiom just by learning what each word means on its own. All languages have idioms. This is a common, universal human trait. They're a form of non-literal expression. 
So how many of you know what it means to kick the bucket? Right? That's an idiom. How about uh, beat a dead horse? Right? Oh, they were hanging on by a thread. You guys know what these are? Okay. These are idioms. Am I really talking about kicking a bucket? Am I really talking about punching a dead horse? Or hanging on by a thread? No. You know that. But guess what? For people whose English is not their first language, when they first are learning English, they don't know that you're not talking about kicking a bucket or beating a horse. Why? Because these are idioms. Just because you know what the word kick and bucket means doesn't mean that you know what the phrase kick the bucket means. Okay? Just because you know what hang on and thread means doesn't mean that you know what it means to hang on by a thread. It's an idiom. Now, I gave you some English idioms, but all languages have idioms, including Greek and Hebrew. So we find idioms and idiomatic expressions throughout the Bible. And if you don't know that it's an idiom, it's possible to misunderstand or to lose its meaning. One of the most common idioms that you see all throughout the Bible is this expression, at the right hand of God. And if you don't understand that that is an idiom, it will lead to a world of confusion when you're trying to study the Godhead. Because when we read in Scripture about Jesus being at the right hand of God, we're not talking about one person standing on the right side of another person. We're talking about an idiom. And in Hebrew culture, the right hand referred to power and authority. So when someone was at the right hand, that meant they were in a place of power and authority. So when we read in Acts 7.56, oh, my slide's reset. Hang on. This is Stephen as he's being stoned and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man, Son of Man, another reference to Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. He did not mean as he was dying that he saw up in the clouds Jesus standing on the right side of God. He was using an idiom. He was saying, look, I see Jesus in the place of power and authority. And the people who were with him knew exactly what he meant when he said that because it made them even angrier. And then they execute him for making this claim of Jesus being in a divine position. When he said he saw Jesus at the right hand of God, he was saying Jesus is God. It was a divinity claim. But you'd miss that if you didn't know this was an idiom. So idioms are important. That's just one example. You can Google this and find biblical idioms. You can find different books and resources that will tell you where there are idioms. My point tonight was just to bring it to your attention that just like we find in English, in Hebrew and Greek, there are idioms. And there are funny expressions, if you will, that we find throughout the Bible. And if you read something and it seems a little odd to you, one of the easiest things you can do is read it in multiple translations. And that will probably give you a good idea of what's going on. And if you're still not sure about it, look the phrase up. See if you can find some additional information. 
In addition to idioms, how about metaphors? Using a word or a phrase that ordinarily represents one thing to describe something else. It's an indirect comparison of different things. So, how about this one? For our God is a consuming fire. This was in the Kahoot game. Do we worship the God of fire? Is our God a literal flame? No, we understand that this is a metaphor. So that's an indirect comparison. A direct comparison where you say this is like this is called a simile. Let me give you another example. Exodus 24, 17. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So here in Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. Here in Exodus, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire. One's a metaphor, one's a simile. If you go home tonight and you don't remember those terms, that's fine. My point is that we need to learn to recognize not all words are expressed in a literal manner. Just like in English, all languages have forms of non-literal expression, they, especially Hebrew, because it's a very poetic language. There are multiple ways to describe something other than the literal words that are being used. So having an awareness of this helps us as we're interpreting Scripture. Let's get to another one. My personal favorite, hyperbole. Hyperbole is when you say something exaggerated for emphasis. How many of you have ever been frustrated and said, oh, I'm starving? How many of you, when you said that, literally meant that you were so malnourished that if you did not receive substance in the next few hours, you were probably going to die? No, we don't mean that. Now, we feel that way, right? But we don't actually mean that. And when we say to someone, I'm starving, we don't actually mean I'm about to die from malnourishment. We understand that we're using hyperbole. I am keenly, keenly aware of this because, baby, I know you're on the ground. And if you're listening to this in California, I am married to the queen of hyperbole. And that has been a radical adjustment for this very literal, linear, disciplined, military child who married the queen of hyperbole. And everything is like a million times worse. She comes from a family of people who use hyperbole as an art form. Everything is in the superlative to the extreme. And it must be genetic because this has been passed along to our little princess who has the greatest day ever or the worst moment of her life multiple times a week because we use hyperbole for emphasis. When we want to describe something, we'll often use extreme language to emphasize what we're saying, and that's not unique to English. We find that all throughout the scriptures as well. Let me give you a few examples. Judges 7.12, now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in the multitude. There were so many camels in that valley, it was physically impossible to count them. No, that's not what Judges is saying. It's saying, it's a really, really, really big army. And we were very scared. 
That's what it's saying, but it's using hyperbole to express that idea. How about John waxing poetic at the end of his gospel? And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Does that really mean there's physically not enough space on planet Earth to house the number of books to describe the life of Jesus? No, John is saying this is just a sample of what he did. Right? I gave you the highlights version. He did a bunch of other stuff. And he's using hyperbole to express that idea. We see Jesus use hyperbole in his teaching. And you can go read church history and see, especially in monastic societies in the 4th and 5th and 6th centuries where they lost track of the idea of hyperbole. And so Jesus makes radical statements like, you know, if your hand offends, you cut it off, and it'd be better for you to gouge out your eyes than end up in hell. And you see monastic orders that started taking this kind of stuff seriously leading up to the Middle Ages because they failed to understand the idea of hyperbole. And Jesus was making extreme statements to demonstrate not that you need to cut off body parts to be saved, but what he was saying is you got to do whatever you need to do to be saved. So if you're really tempted with your eyes, you best get that under control, right? It'd be better if you were blind than damned. But he didn't mean go gouge out your eyes. He's using hyperbole. So you need to understand where these expressions come from in these different kind of literary forms. And I'll move on because we're starting to run out of time. The last thing in your notes that I'd like to talk about tonight actually I'm going to make a quick side note. There's another hugely important thing, and you'll see one little paragraph in your notes about this, and that's genre. Genre is extremely significant. It's the style of writing. Genre is so significant, we're going to spend all of next week talking about it. I don't want to spoil it. It'll be fun. So we'll come back to that next week. But it has been my personal experience in teaching Bible studies and teaching biblical studies and talking with people Many, many times when people misunderstand something in Scripture is because they don't understand the genre of Scripture that they're reading. And this is so significant, I didn't want to rush through it, so we're going to spend all of next week talking about that. So that's just a little plug. Come back next week, and let's see what we can learn about the different genres in the Bible. Let's go to the last thing represented in your notes that we're going to talk about tonight, and that is literary context. Literary context refers to the passage in which a verse or a phrase appears. In order to correctly understand a verse, you've got to consider the sentence and the passage and the book and the testament that appears in. How does this whole sentence or passage shed light on a particular verse? How does this passage fit within this section of this book? How does this section relate to the entire theme of this book? Where is this book's place within the biblical canon? When you're determining the literary context of a verse, you want to start with the verse and work outwards towards the passage, the section, the theme, the book, the testament. Think of it like layers. Ever see a water drop hit in the middle of something? Ever do that as a kid? 
go throw a pebble, not a huge rock that makes waves, but just like drop a pedal in the pond or something like that, and you just see the ripples work their way out, those layers. I was trying to think of a visual example that work. Another one would be tree rings, starting from the middle and working your way out. Literary context works that way. And when you're studying a passage, if you're having difficulty understanding it, you want to look at the literary context. Start from the verse where you're stuck at and work your way out. And by the way, when you work your way out, you're working your way forward and backward. And this is what I'm talking about. Start with a verse. Then look, here's a new word for you. Bonus word if you remember this. It's pericope, not pericope. Not periscope, pericope. Pericope is a fancy biblical studies word that means, you ready for this? Passage. So look at the passage you're reading. I just wanted to sound smart. So start with a verse, then look at the pericope, or you could say the passage. Then look at the chapter, the book, the testament. Work your way out from where it is that you're at. To help you with this process, something you can do, and I've done this before when I'm trying to understand something complex. When I was a student in my undergrad and I was getting a a degree in theology, I would take a book, say Romans. We opened with that. Romans is a very complex letter, probably Paul's most complex letter. Since our pastor is listening to this, we can continue our argument later. He thinks it's Paul's greatest work. I don't. I think Ephesians is. That's a little tiff between him and I. I think Romans is his most complex letter. I just don't think it's his greatest letter. He can uh, text me later about that. But take Romans. I will grant it's a very complex letter. It does not hurt you to take a piece of paper or your journal and start reading it and just start writing some major themes you see, right? What is Paul talking about in the opening of this letter? And from there, what's the next theme he talks to? And you just kind of create your own generic general outline. And you'll begin to connect dots. And you'll begin to see how these themes all relate to each other and connect together. Then you're studying Romans, and there's some particular passage. We use the example in the opening from Romans chapter 10. And we hear people misuse verses all the time, talking about confessing Jesus in order to be saved. Well, did Paul say that? Yes, but okay, back up a few verses. What was Paul talking about? He was talking about Jews who had rejected Jesus. And back up a few more verses. It's in a passage about... So you see how the literary context, the verses around the verse you're studying, begin to help you shape and understand what's going on in that passage. When you study Scripture, if you're having trouble figuring out the interpretation, the first thing you should do is determine the literary context. The easiest way to do that, just to start with is literally just back up two, three verses and read two, three verses before it and then read two, three verses past it. So I'm stuck at this verse. Well, back up two, three verses and read and then go past that verse two, three verses and read. And six or seven verses together with what you're struggling with right in the middle, most of the time you'll be able to figure it out just by considering the literary context where things get muddy And oftentimes where people get confused is they've heard somebody preaching something or they heard something on the radio or some friend said, well, yeah, what about? And they quote them four or five scriptures from all over the Bible and they've strung together something to build their case for fill in the blank thing. Well, all those scriptures have a context and you need to understand what they meant, where they were written before you string them together. 
Because a lot of times when you hear goofy things and people have strung different verses from around the Bible together, those verses have nothing to do with each other. And they've removed them from their literary context. So when you're studying Scripture, if you get stuck, if you have questions about something, one of the simplest, quickest things you can do is to look at a few verses before it and a few verses after it and read that passage, that pericope, all together and see if it now makes sense. Most of the time, that'll solve a lot of your problems. If you're still having trouble, consider the context of the whole book, not just that passage. So again, we go back to our who, what, when, where, why questions at the beginning with your investigative reporting. You're having trouble understanding a passage? Well, just back up for a second. Take a breath and go, okay, who wrote this? Who were they writing to? What were they saying? Why were they writing this? When was this written? What was the setting? There are all kinds of different resources out there. Here'd be a good little one to start with. Give you a basic overview of each book in the Bible and its major purpose and themes. You can find many, many resources out there that will help you along with that kind of thing. Remember that Scripture interprets Scripture. What do I mean by that? If you're dealing with a specific topic and you're having a little trouble understanding what it means, go see if there's another place in Scripture that deals with the same topic because that'll inform you because the Bible's not going to contradict itself. So if you're dealing with a scriptural passage on this topic and you go read three or four other passages in other parts of the Bible that deal with the same topic, they should all have some level of agreement between them. They may be nuanced. They may be talking about different elements, but they're not going to be radically different. And if you read these passages and they seem radically different to you and they're still talking about the same thing, then that's a warning to you that something's off. I'm misunderstanding something that I'm reading. And then finally, make sure that your interpretation does not contradict what the Bible teaches us in other places. So if you're, you come to a conclusion, you say, I think this is what this passage means. Well, then you think about it some more and you realize that contradicts something you read some other place in the Bible. Something's off because Scripture is not going to contradict Scripture. There's a unity and a wholeness that God has woven through his scriptures. So when you are interpreting, when you're studying, when you hear somebody preaching something and it sounds radically different than what you understand from other parts of the Bible, it's time to slow down. Spend a little time in prayer. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you, give you direction, and don't be afraid to seek help. There are many, many qualified people around you who'd be happy to answer questions for you. It is always an excellent idea to stop reading and spend a little time in prayer and ask God to give you understanding. All right. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. As we're coming to a close, we're just about out of time. And it's 8.45. We are out of time. So I apologize. I do not have time tonight for a Q&A, but I'm going to stay down here for five or ten minutes. And so if you want to come and ask me your questions because I didn't leave time for a Q&A, you are welcome to do that. Uh, do you have an announcement? I'm going to pass it over to you. All right. How many of you enjoy that? I love learning. That's some good stuff. That's good stuff. All right. Well, just want to remind you again, take your trash to the trash can and your recycling to the recycling. You can take whatever snacks are left out there on your way out. If you are a preteen and up, come see Vincent. Vincent's going to be right over here. Vincent, I'm going to put you right over here, okay? 
Vince is going to be right over here on this side. Bring your sheet uh, to 